Welcome back to the London Futurist podcast. We've remarked before in this podcast that while AI research is galloping ahead, the deployment of modern AI in industry and government organizations is advancing at a more stately pace. One of the people trying to change that is our guest today, Steve Coates. Steve dropped out of college to become a chef, but he switched again and took a degree in computer science and then spent 20 years developing business strategies with Accenture and the Boston Consulting Group. Seven years ago, he co-founded an AI company called Brainwave, and he says its core idea is something called decision intelligence. I'm sure we'll get into what that is. The name Brainwave has two ends to denote neural networks. Steve, welcome to the London Futurist podcast. Thanks, Callum. Good to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you here, Steve. Looking forward to a stimulating conversation. No, me too. So, Steve, perhaps you could kick us off by telling us how you got involved with AI. It's been an interesting journey. Before AI became popular, it was always advanced analytics. Working for companies like Boston Consulting Group, that's their bread and butter, but normally it's done by hundreds of consultants working very, very long hours into the night to pull together complex data and try and find insights in that data to advise their client. The rise of the cloud technologies really intrigued me at that time. I wasn't quite a futurist thinker like yourself, Karen, thinking that it was the end of the consulting world. But I did appreciate that things would have to change and things will change quite rapidly. I guess that was my first footstep into the AI world. When we set up Brainwave, we didn't really set up to be an AI company initially. What we were passionate about really was about data and bringing data to people in insensible ways so that they could make better decisions. One of the things that consultants always do very well is they back up any advice or decisions with robust facts and being able to point to why they're saying things. And I think technology was moving in that direction, and that was really interesting. So when we first set up Brainwave, it was actually, in its first incarnation, more of a data marketplace. So we had this concept of, well, let's try and bring complex data sets, things like satellite data, geospatial data, that aren't traditionally used, bring them to the business world at scale, and then leverage some of the algorithms that were being developed by research around, you know, vision algorithms and various other things that were interesting to us. But actually what we found in that early concept is that the clients weren't quite ready to receive that type of thing. So we kept coming up with this, look, that sounds fantastic, but we don't have the internal capability. I mean, seven years ago, data scientist wasn't the sexy job title that it is today. It was still very much in the realms of academia. And so we sort of evolved like most startups when you're trying to find that product market fit. And it gradually became more and more connected with AI because actually it's about what you do with the data that's important, how you convert that data into something useful. And once you've built the tech stack that can analyze and process that data, then AI algorithms become really interesting because they can do that much more efficiently than humans can. So it was more of an evolution. So when you started, am I right in thinking that you were using public data sets to help companies and now you're presumably using companies' own data more, which tends to be more useful, the data the company holds themselves, proprietary data or public data sets? In the early days, yes, it was public, but it was also working with companies that are specialists at creating data. So these market analyst companies, satellite companies like Airbus were some of our early partners. That data is much more valuable or was much more valuable than companies' internal data. 
because it's their business. They are in the business to create insight. And I think back to one of our early clients in the engineering services business, the global account manager for BP. His question was quite simple. What are we doing globally with that account? And it was very difficult internally to get that data because it existed in finance systems and CRM systems and spreadsheets and people's heads. But actually, we had a partnership with an analyst company that analyzed the industry and they knew better than that client what projects they were working on globally. So by connecting into that market data, you accelerated that insight rather than their initial approach was, well, how do we connect up all our systems to figure out what we're doing globally? Yeah, I can see how the oil industry, that would make sense because it's such a big industry and there are so many very, very large players that a sub-industry grew up to collate data about the industry. And it had much more information about each company, even though those companies were huge and invested a lot in their data than the individual companies did. But in general, I've heard it said that companies might not need to use the humongous data sets that Google and Facebook and so on have access to, have privileged access to, because actually their own internal data is incredibly useful and they can operate with much smaller systems than GPT-3 to use that data to great effect. Is that your experience? I think that's true. I think over probably the last three years, companies are getting much smarter about their data. And I think the trend has been how do you extract that data that's locked into these individual systems and silos? And that's really where cloud technologies have come to their fore. It's sort of an evolution of the concept of a data lake. Watching that evolve over the last 10 years has been fascinating because you know, when data lakes first came to the fore, everybody plowed millions and millions of dollars into creating them and very quickly realized that they just became swamps because they just dumped these mass data sets into the cloud. Stephen, I've heard the phrase, if only we knew what we knew. In other words, there is knowledge known somewhere inside organizations, but it's hard to take full advantage of that. What you're talking about seems to play into that idea. But I wonder if you can give us more examples of the kinds of ways in which you have helped companies, oil companies or mining companies. How did the decisions your systems were able to help people with come about? That's a good question, David. So let me give you a few concrete examples across different industry segments, starting off in the energy sector. So a big client of ours is a company called Agreco. I know they don't mind me talking about them publicly. We've been working with them for about five years. Actually, there were two key areas that initially changed the way they thought about business growth and targeting opportunities. So first in the mining sector, their salespeople had very clear ideas about what made a good customer for them. For those that don't know, Greco sell mobile power generation units, typically to things like oil and gas rigs or mining sites or even powering big one-off events like the Olympics or even the World Cup, I think. Trying to find those opportunities is about five or six key things that they need to understand. Things like how far is this asset away from a power source and what stage is that asset in its own growth path? Is it expanding? Is it in production? Is it on hold? And then some more tangible things like financial data. What's the debt ratio of the owners? Do they have a propensity to rent solutions or spend capex? All of these things exist in data sets. They exist in things like Bloomberg data sets, in mapping data sets. And we were able for the first time to bring that all together into one platform and create that optimization algorithm that focused in on the things that are most important for that company. So for the first time globally, they could ask questions like, you know, what are the top 100 mining assets that we should care most about and have a picture of that. 
it was a game changer in the way that they thought about business development because actually they saw the markets changing and traditional sales methods relying on relationships and conference networking and, and stuff was changing rapidly. Data really was the key to them to unlock those opportunities. A slightly different example, but in the same companies in the oil and gas sector, this is probably closer to a real implementation of AI, and this was looking at gas flaring. Those in the industry know that you can use satellite images to detect gas flaring. There is an open source data set available from a NASA satellite that takes a nighttime image of the Earth. And there are data scientists that have created vision algorithms that analyze those nighttime images to pick out heat spots. And, and a gas flare has a particular type of signature that can be picked up by these algorithms. Interestingly, they can even predict to a fairly high degree of accuracy the amount of gas that's being flared. So that's all interesting. And we were aware of this. We know that the World Bank do this on an annual basis. But actually, in a business context, we wanted to know, well, can you bring the granularity of that down from an annual study into a daily study? Because the images are every 24 hours. And this is actually where the concept of decision intelligence start to come in. So this is a good example to use there. Yes, we were able to take that daily satellite, put it into the platform, analyze it, pick out these spots. But then actually being able to assign that to an operator requires an entirely different data set that understands where these assets are and who owns those assets and who the ultimate owners are. You tie that AI, the vision algorithm that's picking out these spots and guessing where these gas flares are, to the owners of those assets. And then how do you make that useful? Well, you tie it into a business process. And this is where decision intelligence, the concept comes in, because it's, it's a practical application of AI. So you take it out of the theoretical study space and you say, well, that needs to exist in a sales pipeline. So our salespeople in the oil and gas sector, they need to know who's flaring gas, how much they're flaring, at what volume and over what time period. And then you can target those opportunities with your generation solution and say, hey, well, look, you're flaring this type of gas. And actually what you find is you know more about the client than the clients know themselves. And that's a very engaging sales process. And so that's what excites me about decision intelligence. I think I've heard you say before that some of your data sets have seven dimensions in which they vary. So this isn't the kind of thing that a salesperson or an executive could easily hold in their head. But with your decision intelligence support systems, you can make some of that connections and variations clearer. David, that's a good point. And actually, it's something that does intrigue me about how this thing will evolve. Machines are very good at multi-dimensional analysis because they can hold an infinite amount of dimensions. And with the cost of cloud computing coming down the way it has infinite amount of data, I suppose, at, at some degree. To make good decisions, you have to trust what's underpinning that decision. And I think in what we've seen in the last probably 10, 20 years, you know, since I've been in this industry, is there's always a distrust about the data. This old adage of rubbish in, rubbish out. And that's very true when you have a human doing the analysis because they can only hold so much in their head. And so they're limited, I guess, to the amount of data that they can conceivably analyze to come to those conclusions. I think what machines are doing when we think about AI is they are taking that multi-dimensional approach to the next level. And so to a certain degree, the machine doesn't care because it's not emotional, but the rubbish in, rubbish out concept dampens down a bit because you've got access to much more data and therefore the bits that aren't very good 
the machine will pick up those patterns and kind of normalize that over a, a much broader, broader space. So you reduce the impact of having rubbish in, rubbish out. But you do create a new problem for clients. And that's like, how do you trust the algorithm? For the last 20 years, it's like, well, I don't trust the data. And then now people like me and Brainwave, we're trying to bring these new technologies and approaches to clients. And there's a real concept of avoiding black boxes. Yeah. Actually having explainable AI. Like, yeah. How do I trust this algorithm? And this ties into something that really interests me, which is the observation that AI research is galloping ahead, you know, GPT-3 and stable diffusion. And in fact, I understand that GPT-4 is coming out next month or January, which I'm sure lots of people are very excited about. So AI research is galloping ahead, but AI deployment in industry and organizations seems to be a lot slower. And maybe the reason for that is this fear that the algorithm, while it's learning, will make mistakes. And you can't have processes run by systems which are going to make mistakes. It's just too scary. Also, a lot of people say that a lot of the systems in deployment, which are claimed to be AI, are actually not. They're just statistical systems. Is the difference whether the system learns as it pursues its goals? Is that the difference? Is that what makes the difference between a system which truly is AI and, and actually isn't? And, a, and does that explain why AI is being slower to deploy in the real world, do you think? It's definitely a, an issue that's out there. There is a lot of confusion about what is meant by AI. And machine learning is a subset of AI. It has a clear definition that the algorithms will learn from themselves as you feed it data and it will adjust and make tweaks to its outcomes. Whereas AI is where machines are predicting things or spotting patterns and making insights and recommendations. And I think there is a broad adoption of AI, whether you call it advanced statistical models, but it's actually using data to let the machines come to some sort of intelligent conclusion around what the insight might be. And the gas flaring is an example of that. It's using vision algorithms to look at a nighttime image of the Earth and guess certain patterns and say, yes, those pixels on that screen are most likely to be gas flares, not forest fires or you know, whatever it may be. And I think that's an easier thing for companies to adopt because actually it's really just using the compute power to analyze vast amounts of data and you, know, you can draw quick conclusions from where that analysis has come from. And there's not necessarily any learning going on in that instance, is there? Well, other than a lot of these vision-based algorithms, they're built off the back of things that have been trained in that sense to pick out those types of images. So it's always important when you think about AI, it's you need vast amounts of data so that you can do training algorithms. You can help the machine learn what it needs to learn, and then you can forward predict. An example of that in industry, a slightly different example, was with a shipping client who had 20 years plus of operational data on ships. And that's a vast amount of data. That's enough for you to sort of split the data in half and say, right, we're going to take 10 years of that data and we're going to build some predictive models that learn from themselves and make predictions about operating costs and budgets and so forth. And then you can point it at the other 10 years of data and say, well, how well is the machine doing? Because you've got a completely unbiased set of data there. And so these things are possible where you can use those machine learning type algorithms. But again, you run into human behavior. One observation I've had over the last few years is and probably quite rightly so, humans are very unforgiving of computer algorithms. So humans make mistakes all the time. You hear it all the time, well, I'm only human. 
yeah, that's said in business all the time. You know, I can't get it right all the time. I'm only human. But there's an expectation on a machine that they have to get it right all the time because they're a machine. They have no right to get it wrong. And so when you think about some of the implementations in companies, it's a difficult thing to overcome to say, well, this machine will be predicting things. And statistically, we can look at that and say 90%, that would be a phenomenal result. 90% of the time, it's going to get it right. 10% of the time, it probably won't. If you were looking harshly that you say that's compared to your human system that you currently have that maybe gets it right half the time. But you can't really convey those messages because we're a lot less forgiving on machines getting it wrong. The kind of system that I'm always surprised hasn't sprouted like mushrooms is the system that DeepMind used to optimize the cooling processes in Google server farms. I don't know how many farms they applied it to, but they generated a huge amount of saving in what was already probably a pretty well-run facility being Google. And yet you're not seeing that kind of approach taken up by National Grid and by the oil companies and lots of other process industries where you'd think it would be absolutely implementable. And I'm still surprised that that's the case. I am surprised as well. There's no doubt that the large tech companies like Google and Facebook, they're at the forefront of this. I don't know how available they're making that technology I don't know whether it becomes a commercial decision or whether it's a human barrier, maybe. Maybe these organizations aren't quite ready to adopt that type of thing. I read a study by McKinsey that when companies get AI right, they can see cost savings of up to 90% and revenue increases up to 75%. So I read those numbers and I'm like you, I'm thinking, well, everybody will have to do this at some point. There won't be a choice about it because I think the industry will eventually move in that direction. And what you'll have is innovative startup companies that enter traditional industries and turn them on its head, leveraging these technologies. And I think traditional, I guess, old school industries recognize this and they are investing millions of pounds, tens of millions, hundreds of millions in this. Trust me, over the last seven years, I read statistics like that all the time. I think, well, this is such a fantastic industry to be in. But it's hard. It's hard to get people to adopt things. Human change has always been the biggest challenge, and it was the same 20 years ago as it is now. So how do you get your clients to trust your algorithms? Because I can imagine they'll say, well, I see these statistics, but they've been cherry-picked. They're the best cases. What gets published is the few cases when the predictions are wonderful. People don't similarly publicize their failure cases before one of your clients spends a lot of money traveling somewhere to investigate a possible gas flare, how do you persuade them that your algorithm is likely to have come up with the right identification? That's such a good question, David. We probably put twice as much effort in explaining things as we do in actually building things in the first place. So if I think about what our data science team do, a lot of the work when we do, particularly when we do initial engagements with clients, Like anything, when you build a relationship and you work with a client for a long time, that trust becomes apparent. And sometimes clients can be too trusting in the sense of they believe that Brainwave might have all the answers and are happy for us to guide them. I think what it takes is we spend a lot of effort explaining the algorithms. So actually building models and visualizations that unpick the elements that are making the predictions to try and explain what's going on. But often that is a challenge. How do you get somebody that has a PhD in mathematics 
to explain to a very busy business person who is without doubt very intelligent and super bright, but has a hundred things on their plate and is trying to move forward at pace. There's a lot of time taken in trying to get that message across and explain what's going on. I think when you find good data scientists, they're the ones that can tell stories around the data that average human beings can understand, or probably a better way to say it, human beings that don't have a lot of time on their hands can get the concepts quickly and can therefore build trust. Just to follow this up, I like the emphasis upon communication skills. I do think as a futurist, we need to be better, not only at learning, but better at teaching, better than sharing what we know. But is there a risk that your data scientist here will offer an explanation that sounds plausible, that sounds easy to understand, but isn't actually what the algorithm is doing? Because after all, this is one of the risks in the whole field of explainable AI, that the system is fabricating reasons. A bit like we humans, sometimes we offer justifications for why we did things that weren't the real reasons, they just sound nice. So are you confident that you are truly understanding what your algorithms are doing here? Yes, is the answer. But I recognize that risk. In Brainwave, I suppose, the way that we manage that, and this is not unique to Brainwave, I suspect a lot of these startup companies are similar. As chief executive of Brainwave, I have a very client-facing role. Most of my time is actually working with our clients and finding those opportunities. And having been a consultant for 20 years, I have that, I guess, ability to communicate with clients in a way that they understand. So I can be the acid test internally. So I can go to our data science team and come up with the shortened version. We hate buzzwords in Brainwave and we do everything we can to avoid going down that track, but actually trying to pick out what's the key message, what's the story here. I can have that internal dialogue with the PhDs, the data scientists, to make sure that what I'm saying externally matches up to what's actually going on. But it is a challenge because some of these things are enormously complex. There are times when, even with a maths degree and somewhat literate in that space, it's hard to understand. So it is a danger because you you have very bright research type people that are pushing the boundaries in terms of this space, but they don't necessarily have those communication skills to bring that back and communicate it to people in ways that they can understand. I read a, maybe it was Forbes, there was a good article about the role of a data scientist and they're saying it's the sexiest job title of recent years. But actually, a data scientist is a storyteller. A good data scientist is a storyteller. And it's somebody that can go down to the depths of the complexities that are needed to build some of these algorithms, but then tell it in a way that can engage their audience and help them understand what's going on. So you're working with miners and oil companies and energy companies. Are you also working with financial services companies? Because that's a sector where at least reportedly, they're pretty far ahead relatively in deploying AI. Brainwave doesn't work in the financial services sector at the moment. I'm smiling a bit there, Callum, because I'm recalling a story I think I've told you before. I was sitting next to a senior exec of an investment bank, and this would have been maybe 15 years ago. They had a machine in the office, a black box, that was doing some of this high-frequency trading. And he was telling me after a few bottles of wine that nobody dare switch it off because the people that built it had actually left the company and that knowledge had sort of passed on, but it was generating billions of dollars of trades every day or week or month. The financial services sector have been all over this for a long time. And I think you know, what's driving that is the structure of the data that they deal with is very structured. It's finance data, it's tables, it's something that machines can readily understand. Do you think that our financial infrastructure, the global trading system, 
is populated by AIs wandering around, which are learning how to maximize profits and are not transparent because lots of times their owners, their managers don't know what they're doing. Is the global trading system really being run by AIs like that? I slightly doubt it. Maybe it is. Listen, I don't know, to be honest. I don't have that insider knowledge on that scale. But I I do think, like all things in any company, I mean, this happens a lot. Often you'll have bright people that come along and build something, whether it's a a spreadsheet that does sort of clever analytics, but then they move on. And time and time again, you come across these situations where big decisions of business are being run off things that have been built by people that have moved on and nobody really understands. But they then turn the spreadsheet off because it's generating value. Listen, I don't think the financial system is being run by AIs. No, it's hard to believe. I mean, it's a very, very heavily regulated industry, especially after the 2008 crash, which was not due to AIs running a market. It was due to people taking silly risks and not knowing what they were doing. But it's hard to believe that the SEC looks at Chase Manhattan and JP Morgan and says, oh, that's fine. You've got algorithms, which nobody has any clue what they're doing. Responsible for three quarters of the trade on New York Stock Exchange. It's hard to believe. Yeah, you talk about the role of the regulator there, and I think that's a big area that will increasingly become more important because actually who is going to be policing this as it starts to gain momentum? And are you welcoming more government involvement, regulations in your field, or do you think you're making a good job of self-regulating? Does anybody ever welcome regulation? <laughs> Listen, I welcome the ethics of it all. There's a lot of effort put in to think about ethical AI as trailblazers in this space. Ethics is always at the forefront. And I think regulation can help there because it can harmonize how people think about these things. And it is very much needed. I think the challenge of regulators is really keeping up with the industry. It is a difficult thing to police. There is definitely a role for regulation in some areas of deployment. And I think that's around policing the ethics of it all. So, Steve, if there was one single message that you'd most like to convey to an executive thinking about how best to deploy AI, and very few people are doing it completely from scratch now, but what's the single most important thing people should keep in their heads? Gosh, that's a good question. I thought you were going to say decision intelligence. It definitely is decision intelligence, but I was going to try and be a bit more intelligent in the way that I said it. But yes, Look out for decision intelligence. It's not really a buzzword, but it's something that I first came across about three years ago. I think I read it in a Gartner report initially. It's about practical implementation of AI. Don't embark on big studies or these internal programs that don't have clear business objectives tied to them. So a lot of the pilot work that we do, we're very diligent about thinking about what's the outcome from this. How do you measure the outcome from this? And how will it be scaled in your organization to enact change? And that's really what underpins the concept of decision intelligence. And certainly the companies that are working in this space that have embracing that concept, they're very focused on tangible outcomes. I think as an exec entering in this world, it cut through the hype, which execs are normally pretty good at doing. And when you establish programs, look for opportunities to deliver value quickly. I've seen programs or talked to friends and colleagues in industry where they're still on these massive IT change programs and AI gets washed up with the sort of digital transformation agenda, which is an ongoing evolution. But I do think that with the technologies that are available today that we're leveraging, that others in this sector are leveraging, you can work with small companies like Brainwave in ways that you couldn't before 
and test things out, test things out, try and get to value quickly and recognize that it's not always going to work. That's the other beauty of working with smaller companies, I think, is you can fail fast. And that's one of the mantras of agile and being in the entrepreneurial world. Try things, break things, fail fast, move on. There are lots of companies out there that can help you do that in a much more economical way. And then maybe there's a role. Well, there definitely is a role for the bigger players to then scale things up globally. Decision intelligence is a helpful concept because it's very focused on outcomes and tangible value. Use decision intelligence, fail fast, and then go on to succeed fast. Absolutely. Consider the outcomes more carefully than you're focusing on just the technology. Technology is interesting and it's important to learn about it, but even more important is to know how it's going to influence your business processes and the outcomes. And yeah, deliver value quickly. I like that resonance. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for joining us, Stephen. This is a practical example of AI making real difference in real corporations and real industries. Thank you, David. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing some real case studies. That's very helpful. Thanks, Gal. Thanks, David. No, I've enjoyed it. Enjoyed the discussion.